Tonight, we are starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount, simply entitled The End of Me. And much like every new series, uh, every series that I'm in, you know, I'm really excited about this series. I know you haven't probably heard that before from me, that I'm excited about a series, but I am. I'm excited about this series and really what I believe God wants to teach us within this. Uh, I actually started uh, a series on the Sermon on the Mount almost five years ago. I think I started at the end of 2016 and made it through most of chapter five and for one reason or another uh, stopped it and went on to something else at that time. But really excited to get back into it and really kind of start over in different perspective uh, tonight as well. And there's some things that I want to kind of go over as introductory things. Uh, how many have ever heard messages on the Sermon on the Mount? Let's just start right there, uh, which is covered at a Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Um, it's, it's one of the most famous sermons in Scripture because it's Jesus himself is preaching and teaching, and there's a lot to be covered within there. Uh, it's, it's very, it can be very deep. Because it cuts right to the heart of really kind of what Michael was talking about there. It cuts right to the heart of identity. You know, we did a whole series on identity in the book of Ephesians. And really Jesus is dealing with some stuff, especially in the first uh, 10, 11 verses as he looks at the Beatitudes. These Beatitudes of how a Christian should live. This sermon is written to believers, not to unbelievers. Now, there are lessons that can be taken and hopefully it will draw people to Jesus if you are an unbeliever. But for a Christian... It's that kingdom principle of the kingdom of heaven coming down to this earth and living in light of that. And really what Jesus was trying to do in that day and age, in that culture, it was very revolutionary. There were a lot of revolutionaries uh, in that culture, in that day, that when they had an agenda or something that they were teaching, a lot of times they would go up into the mountains. And part of the reason they would go up into the mountains is because they were afraid of some of the authorities trying to arrest them and take them to jail. Uh, I don't believe that's necessarily what Jesus was doing here, but he did go up into the mountains to teach his disciples and followers these kingdom principles. And again, it's not something as we study these Beatitudes over the next several weeks, it's not something to say, you know what, I'm going to do good at like the first and the fifth and the other ones, you know, forget about it. All of these collectively should be part of our lives. Now they are tough. It is very difficult to get to. And honestly, these are things that I struggle with as well. And this first lesson really sets the stage for all of the rest of them tonight as well. And if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, the title of tonight is Broken to Be Whole. Now think about that. Broken to Be Whole. How many have ever broken something? Let's just start right there. How many have ever broken something? Now, typically when you break something, you don't think, awesome, it's finally whole, right? It's finally perfect. You're like, oh no, I broke it. Maybe you're excited that you broke it so you can get something new. You know, Amazon is waiting for you or whatever. But a lot of times you don't, initially, if it's something that you love dearly, you're not thinking, wow, this is awesome. I broke it. It's going to be better now that I duct tape it. I mean, I'm good at duct tape. Anybody else with me tonight? Duct tape, uh, glue. I think I've told you some of my stories as a kid. Uh, some of them, you know, I still can't tell, tell the statute of limitations with my parents. hasn't ended, uh, so I have to wait a few more years with that. Some of the things that I've broken that they don't know about. Uh, but I got very good at gluing things together with Gorilla Glue. Uh, it was awesome. Cement glue I found in my parents' basement. I don't know why they had it, but I think they had it for that very purpose. I got very good at it. But a lot of times, even in my you know, childhood, some of the things that I broke, they weren't better. In fact, they were much worse. Um, but you think about this. I, I brought together tonight. I brought a, a clay pot with, with or with or 
with me, yeah, with me, uh, for illustrative purposes. And it's got Noah's name on it. So Noah, I'm sorry, but I'm going to take your pot and possibly break it. Um, now, hopefully this actually breaks. Let's see if it breaks. I like breaking things here. You know, I did the glass plate thing and the plastic plate and everything like that. So like, yeah, that was a pretty good shatter. Please do not come up here and step on the, the clay pot. I, I am mean to Noah. Sorry, Noah. Your mom gave it to me. Anyway. All right. Now that this clay pot is broken, it is so much better, isn't it? Yes. The kids are like, yeah, so much better. It was ugly to be. No, it wasn't ugly. Um, now, I could, I could get some duct tape. I've got some around here somewhere, you know, and tape it back together. And I'm sure it's not going to look that great. But I just want you to remember this. We're going to give more illustration concerning this a little bit later in the lesson. But when you think about this, you think about something that is broken. You're not initially thinking, wow, it's finally whole, right? Is that what you think, Julie? You're just messed up. Anyway, you don't typically think that. You don't typically think something that is broken is now finally made whole. So I want you to remember that. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher in the past, he once said this about the Sermon on the Mount. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be there tonight. But he said, the Sermon on the Mount, the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by everyone nor totally unattainable by anyone. Jesus spoke this sermon to those who were already disciples and thereby also citizens of God's kingdom and the children of God's family. It describes the kind of people reborn Christians are or should be. What he is saying is that None of these are things that we can't live up to, and, and at the same time, they are very difficult to live up to, but these are principles that Christians, if you're truly a child of God, should act and emulate within your life. Now, before we get to these first couple verses and, and this first beatitude tonight, I want you to look at verse number 17. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20 is where we're going to start. This really is the key to this whole sermon. Now, I want you to remember, uh, or I want you to note that, you know, when Jesus was teaching this, this took him some time. You know, it's, it's only three chapters in Matthew's gospel here, and you could easily probably read this through in probably 10, 12, 15 minutes. This sermon took a lot longer than 10 or 12, 15 minutes. It took a lot longer to develop. This was just the summation of what Matthew was giving us to the Jews first, but also to us. But in verse number 17, look at this. It says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, some of these principles that Jesus was going to be discussing and talking about, again, counterintuitive to the culture and also to the beliefs of the Jews, because many of them tried their hardest to uphold the law. Now, just a quick question uh, see if anybody knows this. How many laws in the Old Testament were the Jews required to uphold? How many laws did they have? Over 600. Anybody know the specific? Less than 614, less than 672. More than 608. 613. Good job, Venetia. Someone else may have said it, but 613. Give her a prize, someone. Anybody got a prize? Oh, yeah, hang on. Oh. Ryan's got a pen. He's, he's, whoa, there's where they went. Wow. Like we're always missing pens. Now we know it's either Ryan or Venetia or Christina that has stolen them all. All right. 
Do what? <laughs> uh, we're getting crazy here. Um, 613 laws. Now, we've talked about that before. That's, that's very difficult to follow, isn't it? Imagine every day you went to work, the adults first and foremost. Imagine every day you went to work and on your you know, workstation, whatever, there's a list of rules, 613 rules you're supposed to follow. How many would just like probably walk out? I mean, I would. There ain't no way. There's no way I can achieve all of these and live up to all of them. You know, so the Jewish culture at that time was trying their hardest to live up to this standard. And we're actually going to talk a little bit more about this on Sunday in the book of Acts. But they were trying their hardest to live up to the standard. And the, the thing is, no one could live up to that standard. No one could uh, achieve and attain uh, perfection of uh, following every rule because even at our best, you know, we still fail. So Jesus was giving this sermon. And again, it's counterintuitive to what they were taught, what they believed, and also what the culture said. So he starts in verse 17. Hey, I'm not come to destroy the law, as some might think, some might say. I'm actually come to fulfill it. For verily I say unto you, till uh, heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse number 20, this really is one of the key verses in these three chapters. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're going to get to this in a few weeks, but very, very quickly. This is a powerful testimony of a Christian that is living the gospel. The main theme of really the Sermon on the Mount is this, true righteousness. The religious leaders had an artificial external righteousness that was based on law. But the righteousness that Jesus declared is a true and vital righteousness that begins internally on, in the heart not externally. And again, there's some things that I'm going to talk about on Sunday with that. A lot of times, even in churches today, we are trying to get people to live up to external standards that are not attainable. We are trying to change the outside when God wants to change what? The inside, the heart. And I want you to understand that and remember that as we go forward, because this is the key to this whole sermon. You know, the Pharisees were very concerned about minute details of conduct, but they neglected major matters of character. Now, that's a contradiction, isn't it? Conduct flows out of character, and we need this teaching today, even though some of it, honestly, as we'll get to later on in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and 7, it's tough to swallow. It really is. But here's a couple things that it's going to help us with. First of all, it's going to transform our thinking about ourselves. Another thing, it's going to transform our thinking about the kingdom of God and what we are living for. Third thing, it's going to transform our thinking about the kind of character we display to the world around us. And there are so many reasons why we need this. And again, we've been talking about identity for probably two, two and a half years here in this church. And the world around us, the culture around us is trying to uh, so desperately give us an identity that is opposite of the identity that God wants to give us if we are in Christ, if we are uh, um, uh, children of God, if we are saved creatures. You know, the world is very, very much, um, what's the best way to put this? Narcissistic, I guess I can say. 
the world around us is very much narcissistic. The world around us is full of individuals who are so self-absorbed, so full of themselves, and that philosophy is coming into our churches because it's heavily in the world. You know, what we don't need more of is more narcissistic people, right? We don't need that. We don't need more narcissistic people being raised, but that's exactly what the world standard is all about. Now, I want you to take note of a couple things by way of introduction. The corporate world says this, that market success is what defines us. There's nothing wrong with market success. I have things in the stock market, and I look for those things, and I'm excited when, when I, I have gains, but market success does not define you. Academia declares that knowledge defines you. But what happens if you have a brain injury and you lose all the knowledge that you had? Again, I'm not saying that academia is not important, that knowledge is not important. Society declares that audacity and self-discovery define us. So the corporate world says market success defines us. Academia declares that knowledge defines us. Society declares that audacity and self-discovery define us. And really, it's all about self. What I mean is that self-reliance, self-belief, self-confidence, self-expression, self-esteem, self-satisfaction. So the world around us is teaching us to place value where? Anybody have any idea? On self. Good job, Michael. They're teaching us to place value in self. But then Jesus comes along here and to his disciples and followers in this culture, and really for us today, he comes along and teaches us to lose our pre-existing self. And herein lies the struggle, right? The world is saying it's all about self. Uh, self-reliance, self-belief, self-confidence, self-expression, self-esteem, self-satisfaction. Jesus says, I want you to lose your pre-existing self. <laughs> That's a tough thing. Another thing, quickly, pop culture says that identity is something we create. You know, I, I talked about it a few weeks ago, and I think Michael put it on one of our social media things. You remember the post you put about the identity thing? No. Don't you remember? You had the poll, the question to see? Oh, yeah. Yeah, what, what was it? There it is. We don't achieve our identity, which means we cannot work for it. We receive it. How do we receive it? The day we get saved. The day that Christ comes into our heart, we received the identity that he wants to give us. But pop culture says that identity is something that we create. You even think about you know, some of the, the movies and shows and songs that are out there. And look, I, I love some of these things. You know, they're, they're very catchy. How many of you ever watched The Greatest Showman? Let's go ahead and sing all the songs tonight, right? Go ahead, Ryan. All right, let's stop. <laughs> um, but there's a song in there, and there's a line in The Greatest Showman that says that we need to live in a world that, what? We design. So it's, it's pushing an agenda, even that. And again, I'm not against the, the movie or itself, but the, the culture around us is saying that you design your identity, you design the world that you need to live in that fits you. But again, Jesus says something completely opposite. So what is truth? The world, culture, or Jesus? Jesus, I believe, and I hope you believe it as well. David Wells, a great theologian, he says this, listen to this. He says, never before have we had more resources and technology to create a fake identity 
We have the money and social media world, and we work hard to brand ourselves, to put an image of self out there that isn't real. All of us have done that, right? I've done that. You know, I posted on social media, and you, you, know, you post a picture, and you know, it took 15, 15 pictures to get that picture. You know, especially when you have kids, you know, you, oftentimes you don't post the one where, you know, they're, they're struggling, they're fighting. It's like everyone's smiling and looking all great and everything like that. Um, but, you know, we're, we're pushing this thing out there, this image that isn't real. Jesus' sermon begins with this preamble known as the Beatitudes. And the word Beatitude comes from a Latin word, Beatus, or, uh, which means happy or blessed. David Hagner notes this. He says, it refers to a deep inner joy of those who have long awaited the salvation promised by God and who now begin to experience its fulfillment. So Jesus, again, he comes along in this revolutionary way. And right off the bat, he goes counterculture. And he is saying, really like Michael said in this sermon bumper, he says that your best life is found when you're broken. Let that sink in. Your best life is found when you're broken. Makes sense, doesn't it? No, it really doesn't, according to what culture says. Because if you're broken, let's just throw you away, right? If something is broken, you usually don't keep it. You throw it away, you get something new. Again, we have Amazon, we have all kinds of things at our disposal to where we can get something new. So when you hear a statement like this, and I want it to sink in, (laughs) our best life, is found when we're broken, it it doesn't make sense. But again, this is what Jesus is wanting to get to. He wants us to realize that fulfillment of life is really found at the end of ourselves, at the end of me. And I really hope and pray that you listen to some of these truths. And I'm going to take my time on these Beatitudes for the next several weeks. But I hope and pray that you listen to some of these truths and these applications that we're going to give. Honestly, they're they're game-changing type messages. Because if we can get these and grasp these, it can change our thinking in a way that has never before happened. And I I want to give a quick note. There's a book that I've read that I'm going to use some principles later on in each lesson for application. And the book is simply called The End of Me by Kyle Eidelman. And he starts out the book, and I want to read this quickly, and he says, it's a note to me. (laughs) He says, dear me, I've known you for as long as I can remember. I once heard that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and yes, that's us. Though I doubt it's what the proverb was talking about. I've been close to quite a lot of people, but you and me, we have quite an attachment. Looking back, it's fair to say that I've treated you pretty well. As a matter of fact, more times than I can count, I have put you ahead of anything and everything else. Agree? As we were growing up, I tried to make sure that you were always at the front of the line. I saw to it that you got the biggest cookie on the plate, the best parking spot, the comfiest chair in the room where we entered. In school, I noticed the little things that you liked, and I went after them. You always loved attention, so I did everything in my power to see that you got it. You still like the spotlight, so I maneuvered to keep you in its glare. Now that we have the internet, I have more tools. I post only pictures that show you at your very best. Anybody would think you're living the dream. Have you seen the comments people write about you? When you have struggled or had a hard time, I've done my best to keep that our little secret. I've tried to make you happy. Sure, it was 
a little easier to keep you happy when you were a cute little tyke. Um, a simple temper tantrum got the job done. Then as we grew older, I had to be a little bit more discreet. You wanted to keep winning and getting your way, all while looking humble and unassuming. That gets pretty tricky, not to mention very tiring. Take marriage, for example. I promise to love and honor my wife, putting her needs ahead of my own, but you constantly insist on being first. Sometimes there's a little voice in my head in the middle of the night saying, hey, get up and take care of that baby, dude. Let the lady sleep. I know it's not your voice because you hate struggling out of bed at 3 a.m. You speak up and say, hey, pretend you're still asleep. And more often than not, I comply and put you before her. Me, I, I know how you can get defensive, but you have a tendency not to give me all the information. Walking through the sporting goods store, <laughs> not our finest hour. I love to see you excited, but we should have taken a look at the budget first. As a matter of fact, you never seem to care about dull stuff like bills and consequences and what happens tomorrow. I've said more than a few harsh words on your behalf to certain people, and you never warned me about the mess. You never told me I couldn't unsay what I said. I love you, me, but I can't keep living for you. You always insisted that if I just keep you happy, then I'd be happy. As simple as that. But you know what? It's not as simple as that. It never has been. Me, I've let you be in control and sit in the driver's seat, but it's clear that you cannot be trusted. You keep insisting you know the way that we should go, but it always seems to be a dead end. I've looked into some other op options, and I've decided to begin a journey down a different path. It's narrow, it's difficult, and not many choose it, but it leads to a real and abundant life. However, and there is no way that is easy to say this, I can't take this path if I bring you along. So me, this is the end of you. Sincerely me. I like how he put it. And really, you think about it, many of us have been there. We put ourselves first, right? We are good at that. I mean, look, we can all give illustrations and stories of how we have put our own needs at the forefront. And that's really what we're going to try to discuss over the next several weeks, specifically as we look at these Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse number 1, chapter 5. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is where we're going to stop tonight. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very first lesson that he gives them is something so mind-blowing and it sets everything else up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And really what I'm going to do in this, in a lot of these Beatitudes, again, we're, we're talking about being blessed or having uh, happiness or really joy. So what we're going to start with is rejoicing. And if you're filling in notes and filling in your blanks, here's the first blank. Rejoice in your spiritual bankruptcy apart from God's grace. This is what Jesus is starting off with his disciples. He's saying, I want you to rejoice in your spiritual bankruptcy apart from God's grace. Now, let's just leave it up there so people can get that down. Think about bankruptcy. Is bankruptcy typically a good thing? Typically not, right? I mean, if I were to say, uh, I want all of you to go bankrupt, you'd be like, dude, you've lost your mind. You are out of your mind. 
Bankruptcy is not a good thing. I know sometimes you can twist it and make it work for you, but bankruptcy, all right, let's just, let's just leave it right there. What does bankruptcy mean to you? David, what does bankruptcy mean to you? to restart because you got yourself in a lot of trouble. That's good. What else? Uh, Brother Allen. What's that? Didn't manage your money right. Amelia? No money. No money. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yes. Do what? Empty. Empty. Yes. What else? What does bankruptcy mean to you? Marcus? Sorry. My son's talking over here. Living beyond your means. What else? What does bankruptcy mean? Sorry. Anybody else? Yes, Colin? Bad and it's bad and monopoly. You are right. This kid is on to something. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, I can go off on that. Venetia? Uh, so far in debt, you can't repay it. Again, there's a lot of things that we can talk about with bankruptcy, but it's not a good thing. It's not a good picture. And this is what Jesus is trying to get to first and foremost. Again, we're only going to stay in this one verse tonight because there's so much to unpack. Rejoice in your spiritual bankruptcy apart from God's grace. Now you look at the first four words. Blessed are the what? What's the very next word? Blessed are the poor. Now, if you stopped right there, you'd be like, this guy has lost his mind, right? Because blessed are the poor, happy are the poor, uh, rejoice if you're poor. That, That doesn't make sense, right? You can't rejoice. You can't be happy if you're poor. Uh, you know, many of us might be thinking, boom, I win. <laughs> I'm poor, I win. <laughs> I'm, I'm rejoicing right now because I'm poor. I have nothing. But the thought of genuine joy and satisfaction, listen, comes from being poor in anything is diametrically opposed to the conventional wisdom of today's culture. In the midst of those who have bought into the world's way of thinking, verse 3 really ought to read this. Blessed are the rich, the famous, the powerful, the, the movers and shakers, the important, the aggressive, the self-reliant, the self-confident, the glamorous. That'd be a lot to say in one verse. That's how our world would put this verse. But Jesus isn't talking about money because the verse continues. Blessed are the poor, next two words, in spirit. Now, before we move on quickly, this is not that Eeyore syndrome. Woe is me. Everything stinks in my life. I hate my life. That's not what it's talking about. You know, in today's world, being poor in spirit is often equated with being depressed, being weak, being timid, being passive. Everyone knows that this is not the way to get ahead. You don't go around being depressed and get ahead in life, right? It just typically doesn't happen. Today's conventional wisdom teaches to assert ourselves, to care for nothing but ourselves. We are taught that the only vice is weakness. The only virtue is strength. We are encouraged to be strong and we're told that the world is ours if we can just get it. But the very first thing Jesus teaches is spiritual bankruptcy. And the word word poor, and the reason I said this is because the word poor translates to destitute or bankrupt. So think about it this way. Blessed are you when you're so broke that you have nothing to offer. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are you when you're so broke that you have nothing to offer. Listen to me. Jesus is saying that God's kingdom begins in you when you come to the end of yourself and realize that you have absolutely nothing to offer. Can any of you in this room get to heaven on your own? No. No. You see, you have nothing to offer. 
But there is someone that has everything to offer. Who is that someone that has everything to offer? Jesus. So he starts off, again, counterintuitive, counterculture. Blessed are you when you're so broke that you have nothing to offer. The world is telling us where happiness is found, and it's not found in being poor in anything. In Jesus' day, the religious groups believed that happiness was found in a number of ways. Here's a couple quickly. The Pharisees believed that it was found in tradition or legalism. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about legalism on Sunday. The Sadducees believed that happiness was found in, in the present. They had, the, they had to live for now, that attitude. They had to live and let live. You know, if it makes you feel good, go ahead and do it. The Essenes, another group in this day, they believed that happiness was found in separating from the world. They were so different that they didn't even fit in with their culture. Now, the Bible does tell us to be in the world but not of the world, but they were so different that they stood out in a bad way. The Zealots believed that happiness was found in revolution by breaking free of Roman tyranny and going against all that Rome stood for. But again, Jesus goes completely opposite of that. So why begin here? Because, listen to this, this first beatitude is fundamental in our salvation. Without it, we can't even come to Christ. Because when we get saved, we're basically saying, Lord, I come to you empty. I come to you with nothing. I need you to save me. Again, those that are saved in this room, did any of you save yourself? If you say yes, you don't know the truth of the scriptures. You can't save yourself. It's impossible. Salvation is saying, Lord, I need you. I am coming to you in my, uh, not in my own strength because I can't do it alone. I am relying on you. I am placing my trust in you for all things. You see, when we are willing to acknowledge that God must fill us or we will forever remain empty, then we are finally in the place where God can save us. God has never saved someone who came to him in pride. Did you know that? God never saved an individual that came to him in pride. Because you can't come to God in pride and get salvation. I, I'm, I'm everything. Go ahead and save me, Lord. That, that's not how it works. Look over and over in Scripture and you see these Pharisees, these religious leaders that were very prideful of who they were, never got saved, and now they are living in eternity in hell. Listen, when we are willing to acknowledge that God must fill us or we will forever remain empty, then and only then we are in a place that God can save us. Poorness of spirit is not something we can produce. It is not something we can do for ourselves. Our very human nature screams of self-reliance. I don't need anyone. Look, this is something my wife and I have had conversations about a lot. That self-reliance, that self-dependence, I don't need anyone else. I can do it on my own. You know, we say those things, right? We're good at that. I don't need you. Do it on my own. Really what we're saying is when we don't need someone else, we're saying, God, I don't need you either because I can do it on my own. You see, we aren't humble. We are full of pride. We are full of arrogance. Poor in spirit is something we must ask God to bring us to. I like how John Piper summarized this. He said, what then is poverty in spirit? Listen to this. He says, it is a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It is a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. 
It is a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It is a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is a sense that there is, uh, if there is uh, um, uh, to be any life for joy or usefulness, then it will have to be all through God and through His grace. He says, the reason I say in a sense of powerlessness and a sense of bankruptcy and all of these things, because objectively speaking, everyone is poor in spirit. Everybody, whether they sense it or not, is powerless without God and bankrupt and helpless and unclean and unworthy before God. But not everyone is blessed. Not everyone can rejoice. You see, poverty of spirit is essential to the maturing process in the life of a Christian. The same humility that it takes to get saved is the same humility that it takes to accept the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And many of the obstacles that keep us from maturing in our Christian faith are dealt honestly here in this sermon. You know, the Beatitudes are really, they are a a self-portrait of Christ. They describe qualities that every Christian should exhibit. Poor in spirit is important in salvation, but also it's very important in other things. You see, so many people leave the attitude at salvation, but this first Beatitude is foundational for the rest. And as we talked about before, real life begins at the end of ourselves. I'm going to make an application here in just a second. It begins when we receive and not try to achieve our identity. Because only Christ can give us our true identity. There's nothing we can do to work for it. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7. Because Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, does a phenomenal job of illustrating this point to us. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. Here we have a dinner invitation where Jesus is invited to dinner of a very religious leader named Simon. This is not Simon Peter. This is another Simon. Simon is hosting a visiting rabbi or teacher who is Jesus. Now, before we read this passage, we're going to be in Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. All I'm going to be doing is kind of walking through it quickly tonight. But I want you to understand something before I read it. There was a protocol for this kind of event. And what I mean is that in, in that day, especially as a dignitary, if you had someone in your home, there were certain things that you were supposed to do. Make sense? Uh, think about it today. If you willingly invite someone over, you're going to at least clean up, right? Hopefully. <laughs> um, now, certain people are like, oh, who cares? They can see whoever it is. But if you have someone over that maybe you're trying to impress or, I mean, even not trying to impress it, you're going to clean up a little bit. So anyway, there was a certain protocol for this kind of evening. It was spelled out in the rules. When you had a guest in your home, you would greet them with a kiss on the hand, and which was a sign of welcome in that day. Foot washing was a daily routine because of the dusty culture that revered cleanliness. So they didn't have the roads that we have today. There was uh, dusty roads, so everyone had the sandals on, and, and as they walked, obviously, just the dust got in their feet and just dirty. So when you came into a home, a lot of times they would have a basin there to wash your feet. Now, when you visited someone, a lot of times the host would help wash the visitor's feet. Also, it was very hospitable gesture to anoint the guest's head with oil. It was a welcoming thing. Hey, welcome into my home. Again, this was a cultural thing. Very important to understand. This was important because as we read this passage, Simon, this religious leader that knew the rules, 
didn't do any of them. Look at verse 36, chapter 7. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. So he sat down to eat with him. And behold, now, now just I want you to imagine this picture. They're sitting in this, in this home of this religious dignitary of the day. And as they're eating, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat and meet in the Pharisee's house, she came in. So this, this woman that was a sinner, it's, it's a nice way of saying she was a prostitute. So imagine, I want you to imagine this scene. Jesus is sitting down with this religious dignitary, and all of a sudden, a prostitute walks in the house. I'm sure there's other people around, and your reaction would probably be like, what is she doing here, right? And I'm sure the eyes are just looking at her. It's kind of making an uncomfortable situation. And this lady, she hears that Jesus is in town, and she has heard about Jesus and what he has done and how he has changed people, and she wants to be changed, and she comes, and she brought this box of ointment. Verse 38, And stood at the feet of Jesus behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears. So she's crying, and as she's crying, she takes her hair, and she is washing his feet, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and then anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself. You know, he kind of mumbled, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is the sinner. So he's, you know, calling out this lady, like, if Jesus really was this prophet that some say he is, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he wouldn't let her touch him. He wouldn't let her wash his feet. But Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Basically, hey, Simon, sit down. I, I want to talk to you. <laughs> and he saith, Master, say on. He said, There is a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. So the individual had nothing to pay this debt, and the, the master forgave them. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most the one that had the greatest debt. And he said unto them, Thou was rightly judged. Verse number 44. Now, before I get there, let me, let me again go back. Simon, this religious leader, this dignitary, he knows the rules. He knows what was required in that day or what he should do. But he is blatantly ignoring rules really because of his wealth because he's comfortable, because of his power. He's respected or at least feared. He's a religious leader and really he is very arrogant. This woman crashes the party and Jesus accepts her. <laughs> to which Simon mutters under this breath and, you know, hey, don't you know this lady's a sinner? She's a wicked, evil, vile individual. The woman ignores the stairs and all she sees is Jesus. Imagine this scene. All she sees is Jesus who is seeing her, who is staring at her. There's no judgment. There's no looking at her like she's garbage needing to be thrown out, needing to be removed. She is broken and she knows it. But Jesus sees something else. He sees that she is beautifully broken. Stay with me here. Again, she ran to Jesus. She wiped his feet with her tears and then she brings out the perfume. And before I get to verse 44 again, 
I want to, again, set the scene. Women of this time wore a small flask around their necks, filled with a bit of fragrance. For a prostitute, it would be a very important part of their daily business. Where one drop would have sufficed suffice for the feet of a rabbi, she empties the entire bottle. She will not need this ointment anymore. She is offering all that she has because he has changed all that she is. She cannot stip, stop kissing his feet. Now clean in a way that turns the ritual inside out. Just as teaching does with an every ordinary action, just as he uh, does now in addressing a supposedly righteous man and a supposedly wicked woman. Jesus' words turn every preconception inside out. For Simon, Jesus has a rebuke. For the woman, he has a blessing. You see, Jesus doesn't just accept her. He actually forgives her. He makes her clean. But look at verse number 44. He turns to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? Well, yeah, of course. I entered into thy house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. So again, what was the rule of the day? When you go into someone's home, you're supposed to have water there, right? You didn't offer me any water. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased... To, to stop kissing my feet. My head with oil, thou didst not anoint. You didn't anoint my head with oil as is customary in those days. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And that's powerful. He forgave her of who she was, made her clean. And they sat at meat with him, began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Now, let me ask a couple questions. We're almost done. We're drawing this to a close. Which person in the story do you want to be most like? Now, hang on here. If we had to choose, most of us would probably say, well, I mean, honestly, I'd, I'd like to be the well-respected individual, right? I'd rather be the well-respected individual who seems to have it all together and everything, uh, everyone looks up to them. Most of us probably wouldn't say, I'd rather be that broken prostitute who seemingly embarrasses herself, but deeply experiences the love and grace of Jesus. And really, this is a trick question because most of us actually want both. We want to be well-respected. We want to have everything. And we want to be accepted by Jesus. Right? <laughs> we want to be made whole. Listen to this. Without having to be broken. And the Sermon on the Mount is upside-down thinking in an upside-down world. Write this down. The less you see your own brokenness, the more broken you are. The less you see your own brokenness, the more broken you really are. And there are a lot of individuals that have gotten saved, whether it be in this church or other churches like this, that honestly don't really see themselves as broken individuals. And really, 
we missed the point. Because when we came to Christ, we came to him broken, right? I can't save myself. I need you. I need your strength. But then, especially in America, you know, we have all this wealth and, and everything at our fingertips and, and things seem to be going well. And even if they're not going well, you know, we have these seasons where everything is okay. And a lot of times we don't see ourselves as broken individuals. But the less we see our own brokenness, the more broken we actually are. Now, quickly, Jeremiah the prophet was sent to the Lord to a potter's house to await further instruction. When he got there, he saw a potter toiling away at his wheel, the water and the clay mixing and whirling as a jar emerged in the scene of the potter with the clay and the spindle. But the potter's fingers failed him at some delicate point, and he found himself holding a flawed jar, something no one would buy. And as the prophet watched, the man pushed the clay back together and began molding it again in, in the scene of, you know, he breaks it down to start over again. Then Jeremiah received further instruction from the Lord when he said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does? Behold her, look carefully, as clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Really, it's such a beautiful image of God sitting at the wheel, looking down at a flawed piece of pottery, and refusing to toss it. The potter made another jar as seemed best to him, all the same clay and the same cracks, but all made new. This is no junk heap. The art is in endless possibilities of one piece of clay. You know, and I, and I started this lesson tonight with this piece of clay, this piece of pottery that was whole and then I broke it. And most of us would say, you know what? Honestly, this is worthless. It's not going to do what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to hold a plant or soil or something, and now it's, I mean, I could tape it together, but I could try to glue it together, but it's not going to be the same, right? It's, it's not going to be the same, right? It's not. Well, let me give one final illustration. You see, God, God looks at our brokenness much more like something in Japan called Kintsugi. This is a ceramic restoration process developed in the 1500s in Japan. Listen to this. Broken ceramic pieces are sealed together, but instead of hiding the cracks, the cracks are boldly highlighted and traced over with gold. Normally, anything that was broken and refurbished sells at a discount, but not Kintsugi pottery. Most often, the ceramic piece actually turns out to be more beautiful and more valuable than before it was broken. In fact, many collectors have been accused of deliberately breaking pieces so that they could be made whole with gold. It sounds like a lot like the economy in the kingdom of heaven, where the broken are the most valuable. And that's what Jesus is trying to get to in this first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, or rejoice in your spiritual bankruptcy, understanding that apart from the grace of God, you are nothing. And that's the key truth. Rejoice in your spiritual bankruptcy because we are broken so that we can be made whole. And I, and I want to leave you with this tonight. Because here, here needs to be the prayer of every individual. Jesus, apart from your grace, I am nothing. 
Grace is something we're, we've talked about before in our church and something we're going to discuss a little bit on Sunday. But apart from your grace, I am nothing. But with you, with your grace, I have been made whole. You see, that is something that we need to pray every day of our lives. Jesus, apart from you, apart from your grace, I am nothing. But with you, with your grace, I have been made whole. So as Jesus starts out, and we're just starting, one verse in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice in your spiritual bankruptcy because it's showing you that you can do nothing in yourselves. You are beautifully broken so that in God's eyes you can be made whole. And again, it sounds counterintuitive. But I want you to understand this is where Jesus wants all of us. To understand without him we are nothing. And even if you have gotten saved, you have trusted him for salvation, without him you are still nothing. But with him you are everything. As we've looked at in Ephesians, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are chosen, you are adopted, you are sealed, you are everything. Without him you're nothing. With him you're everything. You see... This isn't something that we just look at, we glance over. Okay, you know what? I, I got that covered 20 years ago when I got saved. All's good. No. This has to be a theme of our lives. That, Lord, I can't do anything in this life apart from you. But what do we do so often? We rely on ourself, right? My self-reliance, my self-confidence, my self, 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 whatever. It's all about the self instead of about realizing that I can't do anything apart from God, without God. So imagine if as Christians today, instead of being so self-reliant and so stuck up, we started being more broken. How's it going to help us? How's it going to help us win anything? Well, it's not trying to win in the world's eyes. It's trying to win in God's eyes. And honestly, there's going to be more rejoicing in life when we come to the end of ourselves. Because it's at the end of ourselves where we find life in Him.